We're going to continue our midweek study as the weather permits, and so far, no snow and no howling rain, so we're doing great. It's getting a little bit tighter that at 6.30, we've got just to about 6 o'clock before the sun goes down, but we've had some fabulous consolidated services, and it's interesting because when I finished, which was to permit everybody to go home, nobody went home, and the pastor went, I could have gotten 30 more minutes in. But it was really all we could do to just get the sound equipment up. Thanks for the guys and the gals that participated in that. I heard from somebody that we left a cord out on the beach. Was I correct on that, Chrissy? Did anybody get that back to us? It is? Nice. Where did his debit card go? You were to say, well, Rich, we send it to the office. It's, it's with you. <laughs> Give us the code, Daniel. Okay. Thank you, Anita. And Anita was charming with uh, her family here, just glowing. And uh, we appreciate that, Anita. Getting to see all your family here, that was awesome. There was a young woman here last night as well, about 2 o'clock. Went up to her, and she was actually uh, the sister, well, of some family that I had remembered years ago. And her name was Stephanie Biondi when I knew her. And she's married into the Strom family. And... Um, one of the things that would be Carl, correct? Yeah. Carl remembered me from being a teacher of his class down in Mexico. He had one of those smiles that just said he knows me. So I'm going to... It's Craig. Yeah. Sorry. You were trying to catch me. <laughs> I get called a lot of things, Craig. But I knew him. And so he was able to take me back to particular things that he had remembered of the mission and so forth, and it was very exciting to hear. And he's going to try to draft me a video that was actually made in that time frame. I'm hoping to see, again, that class and some images. I think he said, did you catch me and Christy anywhere in that? Oh, yeah, we got you. So at any rate, what I was going to say, though, is that Stephanie, uh, years ago, how many years ago did she have a... Two or three? Okay. But at any rate, Stephanie was simply sharing that at a time when she was in church, she actually fell dead in church. Her heart stopped. That's a fact. And so she got me to laugh because she, she, she basically said, yeah, I'm known as, as Lazaretti. <laughs> it was a medically proven fact her heart had stopped and she should have been dead. And she came here with a smile into the house of the Lord, and she and her husband have been serving the Lord before that and since that time. Pretty extraordinary, fascinating story. But one of the reasons that I share that is that, you know, the Lord has all of us in his keeping. That's the important part. And one of the things that I shared even yesterday, and it was impromptu, but a song that was sung at the Celebration of Life, I think its title is I'll Fly Away. Is that its official title? 
and the, me, a lyricist, a, a songster, um, had for years thought that it was, I'll fly away, oh lordy. But it's not, I'll fly away, oh glory. And so for those of you that may have been here, I felt it was important for a reiteration for some of you that couldn't have been here. And it was simply this. Oh, Lordy, as I reflect on it, means apprehension and frustration. I'll fly away. Oh, Lordy. But the song is Oh, Glory. And I penned at the same time, anticipation with excitation. And that garnished uh, a bit of wit and laughter from one of my brothers here who we have a affection for the Beach Boys. And that word in particular was drafted in a song that was notably one of their hits. But excitation actually means the application of energy. We come here for the application of energy for what we also believe is a true anticipation of the Lord's return. And it should excite us, not frustrate us, not cause us to be apprehensive, not to enter into his presence such as, oh, Lordy. I got it wrong, and I'm being sincere. I didn't tell you how long I had gotten it wrong, but I will now, just as of yesterday when it was sung. I did not tell you how long this poet had gotten it wrong, but it was just as of yesterday. I was the oh, Lordy guy, not the oh, glory man. So if you want to say, how could that happen to somebody like you? Because I'm just like you. You just have other things that happen in which the Lord all of a sudden turns on a light bulb. You hear more clearly. You see more accurately. And you say, thank you, Lord, for that revelation. So I'm simply saying that right now, I got the revelation. Oh, glory. I teach on it. Oh, glory. But now I own it. Oh, glory. So... There you go. That's your teaching. You're excused to knit. No. We're going to turn to um, 2 Samuel as a conclusion, but entering into 1 Kings. So find that if you would. Verse 25 of the close of 2 Samuel says, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers of the land or for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So as you remember, there was a plague that went all through the land of Israel and 70,000 warriors, David's men, were killed, not the people, but the men, the warriors. And <clears throat> what I do believe this signifies is that David entrusted ultimately the judgment of God for the consequence that would be levied against him for taking the census. That was the theme last week. Senses, eyes, ears, what we feel, what we have emotionally, or the census, trying to calculate how is it that God's doing this? What is it that I can do to help God out? 
And God didn't want that from David. He didn't want to pass on that particular manner of tabulating how much we can help God out when we feel we're weak, undermanaged, not strong enough. God wants to be our everything. We also can say, moving into this next course, at least to the conclusion of what will be David's personal dynasty before passing on the kingship, the mantle, to one that will be introduced to us, that this may have been a preemptive act of God too for what is now going to be understood as another rebellion against David by one of his sons. And though we don't necessarily have accurately all of his children, it is presumed that he had probably 19 between eight women that were his wives. We know that there were concubines that he put away after the insurrection and rebellion of Absalom. But it is an important detail that one of the things he couldn't do was keep an accurate accounting of the kids and their spiritual integrity. It's why that kind of lifestyle doesn't work, which is the multiplication of wives and what we know culturally as a polygamist mindset or philosophy. God wants there to be, with the marriage of two people, that exclusivity, because it gets complicated. As a result of this complication, this is where we are right now by identifying in David's senior years, and actually we can presume this is the last of his year recorded for us. Let's pick it up in 1 Kings, and we'll take on verse 1 and see how far we go. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. So this is telling us that he now, at the age of 70, is unable with his body system to keep warm. And they keep piling the blankets on, keep piling the blankets on. And he's not able to generate enough heat with his body to keep himself warm. They come up with a plan, and that's what's going to unfold next. And it's important to understand that there is very likely in this a motive for the plan. But it's not God's intention that anything come about as a result of it. Part of that culture that we know is that once they determined that a king would be over them, they would desire to have a king, and they would desire to have one that would not break the lineage. They were really into that. They were willing to accept anyone from the line, but at the same time taking matters into their own hands, they also would be defying the Lord. Now, David right now is presumed to be bedridden. Not much he can do. And it's interesting because we see David closing off his life at 70, and yet he would have been fully aware of a man who began the journey of faith at 70. That was a man that we know as Abraham, 
And Abraham actually began his journey of faith following God in a strength at 70 that we go, my goodness. And 30 years later, he would receive the promise of God in the birth through Sarah of Isaac, a picture of a promised son. And then Sarah would leave the scene through death. She was probably about 10 years his junior. And then we would find Abraham marrying a woman named Keturah, and he would have other children through her. Not to mention one that would be a donkey of a man, an Ishmael, who would be basically the progenitor of the Arabic nations, one whose heel would be up against all nations. But the irony right now, as we look at it, is that David was able to pen, even in the spirit, that 70 years is what you got. Maybe 80 if due by strength. And then you fly away. You fly away, oh glory. Not, oh lordy. Some will fly away. Oh lordy. But God wants us to fly away, oh glory. But he wants us to do it in the manner by which we are able to be in anticipation and with great excitation generated for it, full of enthusiasm concerning it. Therefore, in verse 2, his servant said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord the king and let her stand before the king and let her care for him and let her lie in your bosom that our Lord the king may be warm. That was their plan. Now, some might ask, well, what about the eight wives that he had? What about them? It doesn't say. That is provocative as a question, which kind of, again, suggests that this was their plan. It wasn't David's plan. I'm quite content to believe that David was ready to go. And being cold was no issue with him. It was an issue with those who were supervising him in his senior years. And so it may have been indeed the intent that with this young woman, her name will be given to us soon, Abishag, a virgin, that the idea is that, well, David's got to provide one more in his lineage. But we already know that there were sons in his lineage. So it doesn't really make sense on that level either. Was this simply the use of a warm body to keep an aged king warm? Was it something in which where they had seen the temperaments of some of his sons who had power and corruptible power, that this was a way to ensure that there would be someone that would be more suited to take over in David's position. But what the scriptures will reveal to us as well is that there is one that we don't know a lot about right now. And that son that we have not yet had a lot to understand about right now is Solomon. His name is important. It's very much linked to the name of his father, 
The name of David actually means beloved. And it's interesting because the origin of name for Solomon, probably a pet name, he had several, but Jedediah was what God had called him as well. And the linkage to the words is beloved of the Lord. And David's language in Hebrew is simply meaning beloved to the Lord. To the Lord, he's his beloved. God looked upon Solomon, Jedediah, and was able to cite beloved of the Lord. See, the Lord had already given his seal of approval to Solomon. And Solomon would come from the lineage of David perfectly, married to Bathsheba, whom she and he had committed sin against the Lord. They'd lost their first child as a result of that. And God endued them with another opportunity to bring glory to him through ultimately Solomon, who was conceived and born. And it's an interesting thing as well because some people go, well, shouldn't that have disqualified them from being able to even have any children? Or certainly one that wouldn't have qualified to be a king of Israel over all of Israel. But that's the interesting thing about grace is that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense for the infinitely ill-deserving. It has nothing to do with us deserving it. It has to do with the favor of God that cuts through all of the sin and marks a man and woman for glorious things regardless because he brings us a heritage. So these are things that kind of set us up to understand where this is going. There is one on the scene, but he doesn't seem to be publicly known much at this point in time. There was one on the scene following David's kingship, following Israel's fall, that we know as also the son of David, Jesus Christ. And he was not known when he should have been easily known at his birth. Oh, eyes were upon him when at 12 he began to teach the scholars of his day at the commissioning of his ministry under the baptism of John, his cousin. It certainly should have been evident and obvious that this was an extraordinary being, one that could only be in the lineage of David, one that could only be the one who satisfied the prophecy as God, Emmanuel, dwelling with men. The servants around David have set their eyes on someone who seemingly would make provision for his warmth, but quite possibly may have, from the suggestion here, been producing an heir apparent. But notice what it says here. It says, so they sought for a lovely young woman, verse 3, throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. This immediately qualifies that the lineage would not be by any other means other than Solomon, 
who hasn't yet even been introduced to us in this passage. It tells us that the integrity of this young maiden was to do exactly what has been cited, and that was to care for David. Wholesomely, in purity, faithfulness, that's what she's doing. We might be able to say, but could he have been vulnerable at 70? He might have been, but maybe David had grown so wise, understanding so many consequences of decisions that he had made in the flesh, that that wasn't even remotely an interest whatsoever. He didn't care about women at this time in his life. No sweeties. He might have been too old to even enjoy a bowl of Wheaties. He might have even, you might say, have no desire to sow wild oats. He was at that stage in life in which all he wanted to do was behold the glory of God and to establish with certainty that the lineage that had been promised to him and which one would never be removed from his throne would continue. See, David did know something, obviously, about Solomon. And it's very likely that those remaining in his household, the siblings, would have said, hmm, he's treating that one just a bit differently. He's got his eye on him more intimately. He's pulling him back from the stuff that we got pulled into. He seems to have a favor on that little baby that's irritating me. We've seen that example before. Joseph was a prime example who, through jealousy, was basically assaulted by his brothers and sold into slavery. But one who, in that light, was able to see the greater light of God's intentions, which was to deliver his brothers, ultimately, and their families to a safe haven during a very desperate time. So what we know right now is that David will be facing off ultimately with the expiration of his life. He's keeping a woman that has been brought to him and she's satisfying the specific charge, just tending him. And this is interesting too because it's actually a picture as well that the Lord has a bride right now that the world just is hoping blows it, gives up on him, doesn't stay faithful, makes wrong choices. And much like what we see here is that the king does not know her with regard to letting any violation happen. And what we see of her is faithfulness to do exactly what the Lord has put in her heart to do, tend and keep things in order to be able to make that transfer ultimately of power to the one that is being raised up, and that's Solomon. We're told in the scriptures that the Lord will present to himself before his father a bride that is without spot or wrinkle. And we don't necessarily get that either. What we do need to understand is we're to believe it. It's important because every single one of us has in remembrance 
a spot or a wrinkle in our life. Some would say it's a consequence and you deserve to live with it. God says, I took that consequence and they don't have to live with it. They don't have to be reminded of it. Which is why we emphasize again communion because when we remember him and the work that he has done, we are able to remain satisfied that there is no stain seen upon us because the Lord sees us robed in the righteousness of his son. For those that do not understand this principle, then what that does do is invoke fear. What happens if what I have heard is true and I stand before God on the last day of my life and in the blink of an eye? Then you will be judged according to your works in the flesh and the consequence of your decisions. But if you're in Christ, you're his bride, he keeps you. He keeps you in your purity. He keeps you presented as without spot or wrinkle. It's a beautiful declaration here. That transition you do not have to worry about. Somehow we get directed to the Bema seat, the reward throne in which we stand before God and we receive from him crowns that have been earned in following him, being faithful to him. Verse five is when we get into our closing conspiracy here. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. Where did he learn that from? He learned it from his older brother, Absalom. That's who he learned it from. Yesterday we had a beautiful family story of Craig, who said Carlton was a great older brother, about seven years his senior. And he was able to say with just that beautiful look in his eye, he was a great older brother. I know what that's like to have great older brothers. And he was such a great older brother to him that it was difficult to let his brother go into the arms of Anita. <laughs> <laughs> he was sharing that that was a provocation because they had been buddies all of their life. That's the type of brother that Carlton was. And it made me laugh and it made him laugh. And Anita's always laughing. <laughs> Anita, you were gracious. You were a gracious woman of God. But I will tell you, I had a sister-in-law that also accompanied us when my brother came into town because she said, Don, you're going to hurt their feelings. They love you. They admire you. That's ah, nothing. Just break the news to them. No, 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 you're not doing that. And so when we found out that Don was getting married, we all had the slumpy shoulders and the frowning faces. And she went with us, but for you to allow him to go with you, same sister, that's awesome. You want a heart, that's cool. But that's what type of brother that Carlton was. Adonijah is just like his older brother, and his older brother was corrupt. 
because of whom he had spent time looking up to, he was no longer interested in the things of God. In the same manner that his brother exalted himself, he followed the same pattern, which is why patterns are important domestically, that we follow those patterns that are true to the heart of God, not to our own ambitions. When ambitions are focused on what does God want for me, then the beautiful opportunities that we get to choose how we desire to please God and glorify him are, are really multiplied. I mean, it's like, how many songs can we write with seven notes? Infinite, based on rests and based on tempo and just a variety of things. And so he's become just like his brother. Guess what, brothers here? Are people becoming just like you because of them seeing you just like Jesus? That's not an indictment. If you want my personal opinion, that's what I say you're doing. You're transferring to them by them looking up to you what you understand about Jesus. The same is true about your sisters. I do not doubt highly your influence on the sisters that look up to you based on you looking up to the Lord. Don't doubt it for one moment. No matter if you do or not, I do not doubt it. That's extraordinary to be able to look at people that are actually teaching people to be taught by the Lord and to follow him. Pretty extraordinary. But in this case, not true. He looked up to one who had defied his father, been a rebel, and it seems to me to have the same characteristics that his brother had as well. I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Verse 6 and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? Who, he was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. And there we have just in that introduction, right there in that verse, that David had not corrected him either. It would indicate that he had a privy notification, a hunch that his heart wasn't right, but there wasn't correction. And so that's really one of the things that we have found out about David is that his domestic house wasn't really in order. And that's why it's very difficult when it's spread out so broadly. But can it be that a man who follows after God's heart, can there be a failure in capturing the heart of his sons or his daughters to be following like him? It can be difficult. It apparently was difficult for David, and we don't know why. Distractions, perhaps, could have been. You know, sometimes there are analogies that we can find. I came in here, and the band was just wonderful today. We have technicians back there that know how to pull it all together. But one of the things I noticed was a, what's called a short in the feed to one of the instruments, and it was guitar. So when the hands were on it, it would go away. But when the hands were removed, you'd get this something like that. And we went, hmm, that's not right. And so went up to White and said, what do you think that is? Well, I, I think some of my gizmos down here, he didn't use the word gizmo, I'm using it. I, they might be cheap. I don't know. 
I said, do you think we can start just unplugging? And so he started unplugging and analyzing and unplugging and unplugging. And eventually when there was nothing plugged into it, there was no static, no, no interference. I said, can we use the other one that has just the three you know, buttons on it? Yeah, we can try it. Do you think you can make it work today? I think you can get it to work today. So he plugged in and looked at him and said, is it good? It's good. And the solution was simply unplugging from what was the obvious, and that was, that doesn't seem to be working, even though it should. But the other one, which right now has been out of play, is now in play, and it's working. The analogy is simply this. We have to, from time to time, make assessments of how are things working spiritually for us. Is there discord? Is there static? What is it that we need to unplug from and get plugged into? And I'll only take it to that extent. But David didn't seem to know how to plug other people in that needed to be in or unplug others that just needed to have no interference in his affairs. How is it that one who had a heart that followed after God wasn't able to capture that same heart for his children? Again, we have to as well know that every man and woman gets a free choice. You get a choice. Okay, you're plugged into that now, but is that really working for you? Or do you want to unplug from it and get plugged into something that does work? I know that we'll get the technology figured out. Because Wyatt's got that mind. I don't. He does. But I remember that once he played, and having changed the configuration, there was no static anymore. And I did not hear one thing contrary to how he played lead guitar that wasn't like, wow, that sounds good. Not like, that didn't sound as good as the other series of devices. I was going, that sounds good. David right now probably heard the sounds and yet wasn't able to say, got to unplug from that. I've got to deal with that son. I've got to change things with regard to pride that I see in him, just like his other brother. And so that's what it tells us right now. Fifty men to run before him. His father had not rebuked him. He was good looking, so he's got a lot of pride. And apparently enough influence to have guys seemingly take courage to run before him like an entourage. And so there are people that their hearts are not with God, but they're able to summon an entourage of really godless behavior contrary to what is the heart of the Lord. We can influence people that way. God would say to us, thank you for influencing people the right way. Thank you for your life pointing to me. Thank you for recognizing particular discordant sounds in their sphere and saying, why don't you unplug from that? Why don't you detach yourself from that thing? Why don't you use what I found to be highly functional? Just these three things. Prayer, the word of God. What else? A personal commitment to the Lord. These three work. That other stuff, 
not so good. And so the rebuke didn't happen. Verse 7 says, Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priests, and they followed and helped Adonijah. This is where the conspiracy now is drawing those whom had served David. He's drawing them away. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, same guy, Shimei, Rhea, the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. I like that. Who belonged to David. We belong to Jesus. Our choice is directly linked to how much we belong to Jesus and know that we serve him and we will serve no other. And that's the beauty in this particular passage right now. I don't know about that guy over there. He seems to be gathering quite a fan base, people willing to do a lot of stuff with him and for him, but he's not our David. And this is where the church needs to stand strong. We belong to the greater David. We belong to the son of David. We belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We're his beloved. We're the ones whose eyes he has set affection upon us. We belong to him. We will belong to no other. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zoleth, which is by Engedi, or excuse me, Endi Rogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. So this is now the mention of Solomon. Not a lot of history concerning his early growing up, but right now where he's at. And this is what you need to know. Very likely, Solomon at this introduction is in his very early 20s, just knocking on 20. That would put Adonijah right now, who has been mentioned, if he's under Absalom, and Absalom was not the firstborn. These two are brothers from the same mother, but it would probably put him more likely about mm, 10 years older, very likely, when Absalom rebelled. It's very likely that he was doing so in his 30s. And so this being a younger brother, you know, probably where he's at right now has just hit that particular marker, probably in his early 30s, maybe knocking on 40. Bathsheba at this time would probably very likely be in her 50s, David in his 70s. That was probably the age difference between the two. And so it's a very interesting, you know, lineage time frame right now as we see that this Adonijah is making a play and he has influence because of age. You know, he's known as the king's son. He's got the looks. He's got the charisma. Men are following. Others are betraying David, who had been with him and noted at one time as mighty men, as prophets. But we see the faithful mentioned right now. And by the way, that's an important 
understanding. God sees the faithful right now. Even as you belong to Jesus, he sees you as faithful, as faithful. All the brothers that remain go into that side. Men of Judah, king's servants, but he did not invite whom? Those who had been faithful, mighty men, and Solomon, his brother. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Come, please let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. What does that mean? Back then, there was the employment by secular kings that the lineage would be wiped out, the one that was previous to the new king coming in. It wasn't just a, hey, nice work, you did a great job being king, go ahead and retire. It was like, we're going to take all of you out so that there's no competition. And that was the custom of the carnal kings of their day. So we do know right now that Nathan's cued in on what ultimately the conspiracy would entail, and that's the wiping out of a spiritual lineage that what? God had already promised to David. He would have someone sit on his throne directly linked to him. It's not saying that Adonijah is not his son. It's saying that there was a son that God would use to bring about the lineage of Jesus Christ coming in, and that was not going to change a fitting title of this is Uprising, Yet the Lord is Arising. He's going to defeat this as he did with Absalom. David may have a strategy employed, but the most important thing is that God alone is the strategist. He's sovereign, better than being a strategist. He has all power, all knowing. If there was a preemptive move by God in the plague that was set earlier, then it may have been to take out even a larger army that could have advanced on David. 70,000 is not small. 70,000 men died. They were the warriors. Just a conjecture, but it may be that even God, who knows the hearts and minds of everyone, can work preemptively to preserve exactly what he wants to have done through any of us. Come, please let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son. Solomon, verse 13, go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son, Solomon, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Verse 14, then while you are still talking, there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. This is the counsel that he's, she's receiving from Nathan. So Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king, just serving him. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And the king said, what is your wish? Then she said to him, My Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. 
Verse 18, so now, look, Adonijah has become king. And now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. And he has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. Verse 20, and as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. It's time, David, with your last breath to make your wishes known, to with certainty declare whom will be your predecessor, who's going to follow not Adonijah, who's going to be the one that takes up your mantle? You need to make that voicing clear. And that's why one of the responsibilities we have to do as well is when we hear that there is a king being established that's presiding over spiritual matters and taking matters into their own hands as opposed to hands lifted up to God who's sovereign, we have a voicing to make, and it is being done. And little by little, it is convincing people to look to the Lord, not to look to the government, not to look at other nations, not even to be persuaded by those in our intimate influence. David right now is being summoned by his wife to make clear to the people of God that a pledge has already been made. Solomon is as good as king to the pronouncement of David, uttering it. And then it says in verse 21, otherwise it will happen when my Lord the King rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. Why is it necessary? Because David both had communion with God, but he used the prophetic voice to instill confidence further and what David needed to understand. And that's the way that it worked back then. The prophetic gifting today is a powerful, beautiful, wonderful operation of the Spirit. It's not fundamental, but it's so encouraging. It is a blessing to see people who can prophetically pick up the Word of God and share it, whisper it into our ears, point it out to us edify us, comfort us, encourage us. And so Nathan comes out just as he told Bathsheba that he would. And in verse 23, so they told the king saying, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my Lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him and they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me 
me, your servant, nor Zadok, the priest, nor Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant, Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord, the king? And have you not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? And then in verse 28, King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life, notice this, from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba, verse 31, bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my Lord King David live forever. Obviously a token sentiment. That's not going to happen. However, spiritually it shall. In the lineage that Solomon will preserve that ultimately leads to Jesus Christ the son of David. In essence, she's becoming a prophetess. David might have felt like, whew, so glad to hear that. May I live forever. But that isn't David's heart. We know that. Time's up. That's not his heart. Let my Lord the king live forever. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king the king also said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. And there let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. In verse 35, then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over all Israel and Judah. Verse 36, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the king, say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. And so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. They're the administrators. They're the ones that have understood the plan of God from the beginning. They were witnesses to what David had pledged to Bathsheba. They now are united in one thing, God's sovereign plan to establish by the voicing of David and through now a procession that he's going to lead by Solomon hopping on that mule and being led by them. Because once they see Solomon on that mule, they would have known the king gave David his ride. The king has given Solomon the men who are truly in authority over all that we have known and that we were a part of. And they'll know that for them, time is up irrefutably. It's a fascinating story, long, I agree. 
But sometimes in our spiritual life, the story that God is writing for each one of us, we at times would say, but when is the transition going to happen? When does he voice it? When does he let others know what he's doing and where we fit into it? And so that's a question that many of us can have even today. And the answer is found is doing what? Remaining faithful in serving Abishag. Faithful in serving Bathsheba. Faithful in accounting the promise that David had given to her personally and voicing it. When the promises of God have been spoken to you, you claim them and you voice them in a time in which there seems to be confusion about them. And you stand in that. And the evaluation, in my opinion, is always rendered. Amen. Amen. When people tell me of the promises of God that have been given to them, and they would desire confirmation, or even just the ability to have some type of affirmation, this is what I say. Amen. Do you believe that? They may ask me. I absolutely believe you for what you have received from the Lord. Amen. But do you really believe? I really believe. Amen. May it be so, so it is. And it's a wonderful power in authority by the Spirit to confirm and affirm in people's lives when they've received the promise of God. And just a little bit of doubt needs to be removed by a shout. Amen. Amen.